welcome to You Understood podcast number seven. 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 Lucky number seven. Lucky number seven. Seven. <laughs> There's a film called that. Yeah. Is there? Uh, there is. We should watch it. Yeah, it's a good film. <laughs> and I know you can hear an unusual voice in the podcast room today. Introducing Aidan Martin. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You're very, very welcome. We're very excited to have you here because it's not often we get a celebrity in the box no, of us. We, 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 we don't get celebrities, no. So no. so this is the first, yeah. I, ha- I had to fight my way through security, by the way, just to get in today. I know, the crowds of people at the door. Aye, yeah. aye. <laughs> Welcome, Aidan. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. And um, I'm going to give you your your um, your little uh, spotlight just to introduce yourself, because I think that you do it, you do it best. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So who are you? Where'd you come from? Okay. What are you doing here? I would always start by saying I'm a recovering addict, you know, okay. and, and l- later this year I'll be five years clean, sober, drug-free, um, abstinent, however people prefer to to term it. Um, I'm a father of three, I'm a partner, I'm a son, but more recently I've become known with that for um, writing a book called Euphoric Recall, which yeah. became a bestseller. Um, fronted my own TV show last year called Scotland Stories, Let's Talk About Trauma. Yeah. yeah. Um, and do a host of other things. I've just launched a charity with my friend Mark Deans called The Scheme Levy. Um, we've just literally started applying for funding for that as well. So we use creative methods to support anyone who needs it. We're wanting to really try and support people impacted by the drugs death crisis. Yeah. By becoming an author on those kind of subjects. I've became an activist in the drugs death crisis and mental health as well, and other um, variables like social deprivation and trauma, and then other things like speaking and doing trauma training. Um, Yeah, I think that rounds it up. (laughs) And what an introduction. It's a a lot, it's a lot to to take in, and and I guess so many areas to to cover. Um, From the perspective of our of our listeners particularly but you know we we haven't met before um i am i particularly wanted to focus in if i may if i may on um on the addiction side Mm -hmm. um so and and being purely selfish here i i had a pretty unhealthy relationship myself um so i'm coming up three years uh uh, without uh any alcohol and I, i was just curious on the catalyst for you for taking that decision on, 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 you know, abstinence or or, or being away from it for, for me, and I just wanted to see whether there was any because I know everyone's journey is different, but for me it was, and it may sound silly, but there was kind of a filter between me and the outside world that I used, and I and I started to get without that filter real joy from the world around me. And then I started to question why I had to put that filter in place, whether it was a filter for good or bad, but it really made me question it. And I and I guess there was a moment where I said, I, I didn't want to look at the world through a artificial lens, whether it was good or bad, I wanted it to be real. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I just wondered whether any of that resonated, but more so, you know, what was, what was your catalyst? What was the reasoning behind your decisions there? <clears throat> I think... One of the reasons I actually was gripped by different parts of my addiction, because it wasn't just substances, was my struggle with reality or the reality that I knew. And with life, 
So it wasn't really, I didn't come out of it because I wanted to experience reality. I actually got into it to get away from reality. Right. People talk about rock bottoms, but I, there was more than one, certainly, in my story. Yeah. So there were multiple different things that happened, but no one particular standalone incident. So there were times like when I ended up on a bridge wanting to kill myself and a police officer saved my life. That was one big moment. Um, having my first son and then having a big relapse um, off the back of that was also a moment where I was like, I wanted to change for him. But you have to, for me anyway, you have to want to change for yourself before you can change for anyone else. Things that started to change were when I discovered I was an addict. So I didn't actually know I was an addict. I knew I had problems, but it was so it was such a social norm where I came from, um, substance abuse and violence and dysfunctional relationships. And it was when I first walked into recovery fellowships. I'm not going to name which one because they have traditions about anonymity. So, right. Okay. Um, that I walked into a um, recovery fellowship and it was the first time I met another addict and heard that person's story and I identified with them. But another big part of the change was getting to go to West Lothian College. So I went to West Lothian College, um, an entry-level course, and I started to get educated. And when I started to get educated, you know, in the college I was getting educated about society, in the recovery fellowships I was getting educated about me as an individual. So, like, for example, um, in college I would, you would hear terms, because I was doing, like, sociology and stuff, so you would hear terms like social mobility, and I was like... Yeah. I had to go to college and get educated to realise I hadn't been educated. Yep. The paradoxes yeah, were yeah. so layered. Yeah. Um, so the rock bottoms, there were plenty of them. You know, There were some really serious ones like um, um, and the, the height of my addiction when I was 19. I stole from my wee brother's cancer fund that I helped raise money for. Yeah. Um, and my brother was dying of cancer. And that didn't cause me to be an addict, but it certainly magnified the addiction. Yeah. And at 19, to be in such a dire state that you're stealing from a cancer fund from your brother, and you know how serious that is, um, and you feel like the scummiest person in the world, and to not even know you're an addict, I never really heard the term addiction before. Um, so there was lots of rock bombs, and there was lots of other moments which helped turn things around, but it was a, a long process, because um, I'll be five years clean in June, but I first stepped into the college in 2011, so... Uh, and the recovery fellowships then as well. So it's not been an overnight um, yeah. process. It's <clears throat> taken time. It's a journey, right? Yeah, of course. And, and, yeah. and, and different for everyone. And um, f- from from your perspective, do you, do you think that, uh, like, do you take the simplified view, and I know it's simplified, but do you, do you take the simplified view that, listen, if I if I can do it, then then actually everyone has the capability to do it if they want to. Is that is that your view or, or do you actually think it's much more complex than that? So I would say that everyone's circumstance is unique to them. Yeah. But I would also say that it's never too late for anyone. Yeah. Um, that's the message I would have is it sounds really simplified and yes, I don't mean... Don't give up message as well, isn't it? Like, yeah, that's know, it. You took the words in the mouth. Don't give yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't give up. And I know when people are in such a difficult place and for me, my mind was the cruelest thing for me. It was the thing that beat me down the most and if someone had just said, I don't give up, at certain times in my life, I wouldn't have received that very well. I'd have been like, I try living in my head and tell me that. But when you boil it right down, it's an important message because you don't know what opportunities might come your way or, or what could be around the corner. Yeah. I think what's really interesting for me about just that little segment 
Aidan, is just how powerful education's been for you mm. and awareness. And um, that seems to have threaded through your your sort of recovery journey. Yeah. Um, and now it's you know threading through into the charity that you've, you're founding now and, and kind of trying to educate and empower people and give people a, you know a, autonomy over over their own recovery. Um, and I think that's a really powerful message that if we can get ourselves educated in our in ourselves, it doesn't have to be a fancy degree or a fancy um, you know university degree or a fancy um, you know education in that sort of sense, but educating ourselves in ourselves. Yeah. That seems to be really powerful. Education, I, I class education as one of the pillars of my recovery. So yeah. if you imagine a, a table with four legs on it, then it's one of the legs of the table for me. And that's continuous, whether I go back to academia again, which I probably won't because I've kind of done a lot of that yep, now. Yep. But I, I never want to stop educating myself. Uh, and that can be on everything. Like, I didn't realise growing up how much intergenerational trauma played a role in my life and how it impacted my family. I didn't know anything about class inequalities. Um, like, if, if someone had talked to... Like, I grew up in a lad culture, and if someone had said to us, hey, misogyny, we'd have been like, what's that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. What's feminism? Mm -hmm. What's what's social? What's um, psycho? We didn't know any of this stuff. We didn't know the term addiction. We didn't know the word trauma. We didn't know anything about adverse childhood experiences. The high school I went to, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak to my own experience. But yeah. it was extreme for bullying and violence, and it was really at the bottom of the league tables for a lot of things like um, education and attendance and all of that. So we never got educated. Um, but out the door at sixteen, most of us already addicts, already using already involved in violence, you know, we're out the door with no hope and no qualifications and no chance of owning anything and, and no yeah. chance of a career and didn't know how to form, well, not even romantic relationships, but healthy Just relationships with other, relationships. Yeah, with yeah. other people. Yeah. We didn't know that. Like other lads to my group of pals were um, <coughs> a threat. So violence was the, the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying this to, to glamorize or anything, but at the time, we were involved in a lot of violence and drugs were there to to be taken and women to be objectified and and we didn't understand any of it it's not to condone it but we didn't really understand yeah, any of it yeah. um, and i had to go and get educated to, to not just to learn but to unlearn a lot of stuff but yeah. th th that's a really interesting concept for me because the the way you recall that and as an outsider not understanding the detail it it seems that those that were in that environment really didn't stand a good shot in the first place, yeah. you know. So yeah. that that's I find that really difficult to accept that, you know, we accepted as a society or a culture or a nation or a government or whatever it is, but we we accepted that that was okay to to put people in those circumstances yeah. and go like this. Yeah, you know, I mean that for, that's just awful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I guess that my question would be to you, Aidan, is is how do we now start educating mm -hmm. young people or even adults looking forward, looking right? forward mm -hmm. and, and moving forward? Because with your charity, um, the scheme, you know, how do we how do we now start educating people? And, and you're doing that through creativity as one mm -hmm. as one outlet. But how do we start educating people so that you know a, a section of society doesn't get left behind? Because ultimately, that is what happened, um, and, yeah. and, and, and in the sort of unfairest sense. I think <clears throat> providing the right opportunities and pathways is important mm -hmm. because, like, I'm, I'm a writer, but I've only, <clears throat> excuse me, been in the creative industry for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> no one at my high school, 
noticed I was a writer. There was no pathway to college. I went to, <clears throat> excuse me, I went to college in my mid-twenties. I just think there needs to be more opportunities for people from an early age. There needs to be more in communities. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that we need to just focus on a working class community above anyone else. I just think there needs to be equal opportunities for people across every communities. And then, um, like, for example, I've heard of high schools in my area that currently, whether it's because of funding or other things, um, they can't hire an art teacher for first years. So people in first year aren't getting any creative opportunities. Yeah. And so that's not to suggest that every student could potentially be an artist, but there might be one budding artist in there that misses their opportunity. Doesn't get the opportunity to yeah. create. And yeah. I think creating opportunities for people and a, a fair starting point for everyone. Like, and also a little bit of forgiveness for people who go on to make mistakes and do things wrong because... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not saying I'm not trying to be fatalistic and saying that everyone that grew up in my area was all doomed, mm-hmm. right? But the odds, right, the group of friends I had, only one of my group of friends didn't become an addict. So the odds are all skewed. The odds are all wrong and a lot of us didn't yeah. know our dads. You know, my dad was in prison. And a lot of us didn't know who our dads were. A lot of us had really solid uh, single mothers usually mm-hmm. yeah. who were working multiple jobs mm-hmm. or, or doing their best. And we would have grandparents and stuff that helped out. But there were things going on in the generations before us um, and not even just our dads and mums, but our grandparents or great-grandparents. So I think there's a lot in these done as far as uh, breaking the cycle, creating opportunities, a little bit of forgiveness. I'm not, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I think it's um, such a punitive movement yep. that it assumes that the people doing the canceling are perfect. Yes, um, yeah. and we is, know nobody is, right? No, nobody no is, no. Is, yeah. I put a tweet up recently saying... Every single person reading this tweet has said, thought, or done something that would get them cancelled. Yeah. Yeah. And no one 100%. disagreed with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and the reason I'm talking about that is because, like, when we grew up, we said things we would never say mm-hmm. now. No. We've done things we would never do and, now. And you change as well as yeah. time goes on. So what you said 10 years, even five years ago, you've got now five years of experience that have informed your uh, ideas about the world and people and, and, and everything. And, and, and you can't take sound bites historically and apply them forever in perpetuity. Yeah, 30, you can't do that. Years plus. No. no, absolutely not. Absolutely and it's, not. It's, I don't want to get too stuck on that point, uh-huh. but for what has um, been packaged as a very left wing progressive movement, it's the most right wing punitive thing I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Yeah. Yes. Um, but when I'm applying it to the lads I got away, and sorry to be so gender specific, yeah. but I talk a lot about these boys I got away these guys have all got such good hearts and they're all intelligent and um, none of them are bad human beings but like me they made a lot of mistakes but I was lucky to get an intervention in my life mm-hmm. and someone I haven't had that opportunity um, and a lot of damage was done both to us and by us in society but some of the people doing some of the best work now I find are people who have been hurt in the past or who have done wrong in the past. We Did, talk about that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Paul, no, we no, go talk ahead. about that one good adult, don't we? That one good adult that you you have in your life, or that one good person that you have in your life who creates that intervention for you or creates that pathway for you that kind of leads you back to the around the circle again and back back on the path of, of of doing well for yourself. And some some people that we know who grew up in these sections of society don't get that mm-hmm. that intervention. So with the scheme with your with charities is that sort of what you're hoping to do to give young yeah. people that kind of one good adult to sort of lean on for a bit we want to do a number of things first of all me and my friend mark who's an artist and a musician in his own right he done the front cover for my book we grew up in ladywell which is now recognized as um, a socially deprived area in scotland now we love that area mm-hmm. we, we adore that area 
but there were pros and cons, right? And the cons had lasting impact. And during the pandemic, we're walking about the street saying, what can we do? And the only answer we had was creativity. That's what worked for us. That's yep. what gave us the yep. way out. Yep. And that's what was, no one was nurturing that in us my own age. We could have been on this journey a lot sooner. So we thought we want to provide an alternative to clinical support, an alternative to recovery fellowships, an alternative to the justice system, a creative alternative. And then we're like, okay, so how do we package this? It can't be a business because it has to be free to use. Yep. We have to remove the barrier of cost for people. Um, it can't be like um, a social enterprise because that uses a profit model. I didn't know any of this until we started doing yeah, this, by the way. Yeah, into it, yeah. Um, and then we found out, okay, we have to do a charity. And then you have to get the right structure. So we became a one-tier um, charity. You have to get a board to govern you, a business plan, a constitution, all that stuff. Two years worth of proper research and make sure you're not duplicating anything else and make sure it's needed and all of that. So and it was also a time when like, I get messages all the time from people who are worried about themselves or their sibling or their partner. But a lot of the time I hear from parents that are worried about their children. And when I say children, I don't mean um, school age. I mean 16 to mid-20s. Right, yep, right. Yep. And they're worried about them because they're heavy on drug abuse. They're uh, severely struggling with their mental health, um, sometimes suicidal. And the question they always ask is, where can I send such and such? Yeah, yeah. Where can I send? Yeah. So we don't want to be given any false impression that we can solve things in a clinical way. But we want to say... Here's a place, mm-hmm. here's a creative place where mm-hmm. we have structured workshops, a drop-in service, and we'll do outreach. We'll go into young offenders, we'll go into prisons, we'll go into schools, we'll go into um, youth hostels, we'll go into um, homeless settings, and we'll take it to people, and we'll make it free always. Uh, and we'll bring not only that, we'll bring some culture into Livingston. Because again, as much as I love Livingston, it's a new town, it's lacking a lot of culture. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a bit of a creative movement going on where I'm from now where a lot of musicians and people are starting to come out the woodwork and show other people that that's a potential way forward. So we just think creativity is a massive, not only is it a good coping tool, it could be a great pathway to another life. Yeah. If it wasn't for creativity, I wouldn't be sitting talking to you guys right now. Yeah. And I know creativity, you know, Aidan, um, we both share creativity as a, a sort of tool for um, navigating kind of traumatic events in our lives and I think that creativity um can be quite a profound tool for um getting through something that's that's happened to you in your life but also um for helping other people understand what you've been through Mm -hmm. in in your own life Mm -hmm. and I think that um having workshops or having people in to you know um help young people kind of navigate their their own trauma can be really really profound yeah, we we initially wanted to do something to respond to the drug death crisis that's yeah. happening in Scotland, but we are very aware that there are variables such as trauma, um, mental health, social isolation, social deprivation. So we tried to target those areas, but we are also very passionate about this is open to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no matter your background, no matter your age, no matter your race, your belief systems, your gender how you identify and we so want to all inclusive right yeah. Yeah. yeah we wanted we said that from the beginning this needs to be a safe space for mm-hmm. people we need to create a safe environment where no one feels alienated or marginalized or left behind yeah, yeah. it's fantastic it just sounds like a wonderful space for for um for, for everyone to actually just have a a place where they can offload yeah i'm thinking about parallels with what we're doing at You've Understood, right? And and what we're really passionate about at You've Understood isn't the kind of stereotypical white coats 
dispensing prescriptive measures based on, you know, underpinned theories or diagnosis, uh, diagnosis yeah. uh, you know, what, what we're passionate about is lived experience. Mm-hmm. So people who have been through, um, and, you know, I noticed it was a, it was a throwaway comment, but you just you, you apologize there for, for being so gender specific. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that was your experience, <clears throat> right? That's yeah. real. That's reality. Yeah. And, and so my point there is lived experience is the reality for everyone that's had it. You, you yep. often talk about being the expert in yourself. Yeah. And and why do I think that's important? I think it's important because when we're going through something, anything in life, and it can be a positive thing as much as a negative thing. I'm a, I'm a real believer in positive mental health, not just negative mental health. The two can coexist. But it seems like when we talk about mental health, it's a negative conversation most of the time. But um, when you go through something for the first time, you can often feel isolated, lonely, lost, um, unable to make a decision, almost frozen by the fear of, do I make that decision? If I make that decision, is it the right one? Is it the wrong one? Looking for advice and guidance. And what lived experience can bring and sharing that lived experience is an opportunity for further reflection, consideration, and information around your own specific circumstances. That learning and learning and the yeah. ability, but sharing that is, is yeah. I think, one of the most important things. Yes. Which is why we, we don't do just want to be, yeah, yeah. But we do podcasts. We, you know, we, we've we've got this app. You know, it's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. We're taking feedback in, but we didn't want to be technically led because it's faceless. Yeah. Right. It's faceless as a technology, which is why this lived experience stuff is so powerful, so important, because someone out there, there'll be a a gem of a sentence or a couple of words that are said and it'll just hit them and they'll they'll open their eyes and it will really resonate with them. And, you know, and prevention for me is is, you know, as important as support. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so, you know, can't, can't tell you how excited I am and grateful I am that you've come on and just shared some of this stuff because yeah. honestly the 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 ability to resonate and help people even if you're unaware of the fact that you're helping them through your books through your charity through things like this vehicles like this is is so powerful so yeah yeah and the other thing with with the app that ties into that is about um learning it's one of our pillars yeah. uh, one of our legs of the the table is about that learning so inputting you know your mood and who you're with and what you feel and and what's going on for you it's all about learning about you mm-hmm. what's going on for you yeah and i think that that ties into the lived experience as well and if you yep. can share that with people yeah you know actually i've had a really r- rubbish day with aiden today not that i would have a rubbish day with aiden, but you know and so i'm not going to spend so much time with aiden today yep. because it affects my mental health exactly yeah you know so these these things are all really important to us as a you know as we go forward. 100%. What, what, one of the things I'm really curious about as well and wanted to get your perspective on is that I'm I'm very aware that when you've got this lived experience and you've got the opportunity to share that with others, you, you can't help but constantly look back the way because you need to share that experience yeah. historically yeah. with people to help support them and everything. But 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 equally, life is about evolution change experience and a forward-looking view you know we age we 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 go through different experiences and we become different people so one of the things i'm mindful of is how do you you know somebody meeting you for the first time without that historical context would say 
Aiden, best-selling author, um, you know, uh, innovator, um, you know, a whole host of things that, that, that would define you as a person in a very different way to the Aiden that's known historically. And so sometimes it's important to have a kind of a clean cutoff. Um, and I just wondered whether that is anything in the future that you see as a potential or whether the two in your mind can coexist as well and still live in harmony without without detriment. The two are synthesized together. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not I'm I'm not trying to live in the past, but um that all has molded and shaped everything that's going on now. I also feel a sense of duty and responsibility to to use what I've learned and the tools I've got and to, to give back to my community. Um and it's I I guess it's impossible to fully move away from the past and as long as I'm not living there in an unhealthy sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because uh, there was a period of my life where I just wanted to go back to my childhood, even though there were pros and cons to that. When I was really struggling with my mental health and my addiction, I was obsessed with going back to my childhood. And that's one of the reasons why when I, I became suicidal, as I had many different times, I went to Ladywell, which is where I grew up, and I went to a bridge there because I romanticised this idea that I was going to end my life where it all started. What I was really doing was running back to my childhood, my place that even though there was dangerous parts to it, it was also a safe space. It was before really going through loss and grief. Um, so it's a hard one. I don't think I live in the past, but there's certainly I, I take it with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if that makes sense. So there's a way of com compartmentalizing the kind of yeah. you know this is the past and it, it it's a tool almost now. Would that be fair to say it's a tool yeah. to kind of you know help other people and help um you know move move things forward in a kind of activism way. I'll, I'll always be Aiden for Ladywell. That's so important to me that yeah. I'm always him. And I remember when I was in college and I would, I'd have periods of clean time right before I got into proper long-term recovery. And this was during a period of clean time when I was working in um, retail. And I was working, I'm not going to say what brand it was, but I was working in this shop and, and, and the whole ethos was to sell as much as you could. So it was really um, commercialism. And <clears throat> my boss would say to me, so someone would walk in the shop and you're supposed to take like jeans and, and if they were picking out jeans, you're supposed to go up with shoes and a belt and say, oh, this would really suit, suit you. And forced sell stuff to them. Yeah. I hated that, man. Yeah. Yeah. And my bosses would usually say like, you need to do that, you need to do it, and you're earning rubbish money, and mm. you're, it's just. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm Aiden for Lady Well, what am I doing in the shop uh -huh. trying to sell all these uh -huh. things? So I've just never lost him. He's still with me, he's still there. It's just he's getting educated and he's getting healthy, and he's and he is healthy, but he's like continuously growing. And yeah. um, I don't mean to talk about myself in third person. But, <laughs> um, no, we understand, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I, that, that part is still with me. And, like the, the boys I grew up with um, still mean the fact they mean more to me now than they ever really? did because right. I see I see a lot of them struggling and I've learned you can't be Superman you can't run with the Superman cape you can't do that in recovery you're told to be the power of example but I love these boys so much and I just I hope that whatever I'm doing helps people like them as well that must be actually just thinking about that it just struck me there Aiden that it must be really difficult to be the the power of example and not and not the rescuer and not you know wanting to swoop in and, and actually you know try to find solutions and be solution focused for for the people that you grew up with knowing that you know you found a solution and found a way out 
um, of that situation, it must be very difficult to sort of sit there and... Yeah, I mean, I, when I first got into recovery, we got told about this thing called the pink cloud. don't know if you're familiar with no. this, no. but it's like having a honeymoon period. And you, you get clean for a week and you think, that's I've cracked it. Right, right. And um, rather than taking time to do all the work and, and get long-term sobriety. And what I did was I took all the leaflets for the meetings and I went to see some of my pals. And I'm like, come on, we're going to meetings. And long story short, you know, I ended up relapsing a lot of times. But I, there was one time, this is how screwed it can be. There was one time I'm in a kitchen as you end up in these kind of situations. One of my friends was admitting to me in that point that he was struggling with opiate abuse. Yep. And I'm snorting lines of cocaine, mm-hmm. telling him, we need to get you to meetings. And that was how screwed my, because I'm back yeah. in my addiction, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. in his. Yeah. Um, you can't do the Superman thing, I've tried it, it doesn't work. People have tried it for me in the past when I wasn't ready. Um, we need to make sure in society that help is there, but there's two sides to the coin, the other side is the person needs to be ready to get it. Yeah. So all you can do now is keep being there for your friends that you love, mm-hmm. um, not to the point of hurting yourself but or putting yourself in danger, but keep being there for them keep doing what you're doing and hopefully it becomes attractive enough to them that they might want to try it as well. And again, that goes back full circle into that learning about yourself and knowing about yourself and knowing about your addiction and knowing about the sort of limits of your addiction and of yourself yeah. so that you can be strong enough when they, when your friends reach out for that that help, um, that sort of final time that, that they're ready to, to do that. Yeah, I've had friends that I've either met in recovery or friends I dropped with who have come around the recovery scene and recovery fellowships aren't for everyone. There's mm-hmm. other ways to get recovery, but um, some of them have come along for a while and then left again. And it's hard to watch. It's hard to see people you cared about and um, go on the medical end, but there's nothing you can do apart from love them, be there for them. And I like, if my friends want to meet up, like I'm, I'm there, we are still, we'll still hang out. It'll be different to what it used to be. It'll be a coffee and a walk outside somewhere nice. Yep. I'll not be sitting in the pub with anybody. I don't go to pubs or anything like that. But yeah. um, I'll still, I'm still that friend to them, and I, I still love these guys, um, like my brothers. Do 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 you feel um do you feel ever like it's a burden to be that power of example, or do you embrace it as a as an opportunity and a gift? No, I mean, I don't really use the phrase power of example about myself. Okay. It's more as a recovery staying where. People are advised not to try and go around saving everyone, but to be, to be a power of example. Yeah, yeah. I think my friends would give me a good kick up the Because I'm not trying to, like, th- these are still people that are going out and, and living their lives, and um, yeah. it's just that there's part of their life that they're still struggling with, and, yeah. Yeah. and I love them and want them to be as well as they can be and as happy as they can be. So the power of example is a phrase that we say in recovery to each other in recovery about, because we we'll hear other people in recovery say, you know, maybe their partner's struggling or maybe their parent or someone they love dearly and they want to just drag them into recovery and get yeah, them well. Yeah. So we always say to each other, all you can do is be an example. And, and, and the example is just by living your life in recovery. And um, there's a good um, phrase called making recovery visible. There's a friend of mine who does a lot of recovery stuff and she's got um, a radio show and all that. And, it's called making recovery visible, and I think that's the ethos: is it's making that attractive, make it yes, visible, yeah, um, and showing it off, not in an arrogant way, but showing off. This is the potential life and recovery. This is the benefit, right? Yeah. From from, from uh, I'm not sure ambition's the right word to use, and maybe it is. Um, may, maybe more so aspiration, but the impact, the positive impact that you're already having. Do Do you dare to say, can we make that impact a a, mu- a much more 
wider impact in society, you know, national, international? Does that cross your mind as you as you make progress? That's why we're doing the scheme. Superb. Yeah, that's that's because we're thinking, <clears throat> and the reason to try and get funding behind it is so that me and Mark can run it full time. Yeah. Because people will see your face everywhere if you're doing TV and books. And they might think you're rich, but you're definitely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still scamping and, and scraping like everybody else. Yeah. So in order to run this full time, we'd need to take a wage for it. So um, you put all that in the business plan and you apply to Oscar, the, the charity regulator, and you yeah. tell them that. Um, so everything's above board and stuff. It's all transparent. But if we can get funding to run it full time, that's why we want to do it. Because I get asked quite often to do what I would have to term unpaid work. Mm-hmm. So I'll get asked to go and do talks in all kind of settings. Because um, I'm a full-time writer, speaker. Um, but it's hard. that I'm in my apprentice stage. So it's yep. really hard to yeah. make a living yeah. out of that so yeah. early on. But people don't know that. And organisations don't have money right now either because everyone's struggling. So they'll ask you to go in. Can you come do talks here? Can you come do talks there? Can you can you deliver workshops here and there? And for two years, I was doing it um, all the time. 99% of the time, not getting paid to do it. The odd occasion, I would get paid. But I got burnt out. And financially, it was tough. So as part of the business plan for the scheme, we're like, if we're funded, we can do all this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We can go into prisons with this workshop. We can go into young offenders. We can go into places. We can run this full time. Yeah. We can make the hours flexible so that it's not just office hours. Mm-hmm. And we can make it flexible in its structure so there are drop-ins, so there are structured workshops, so that we do outreach. We can also ask people, what do you want? We can mold the service around what you want mm-hmm. it to be. Um, me as an individual with no funding behind me, do that mm-hmm. yeah it's a catch-22 isn't it because i remember when i was coming up as a musician some years ago you had to do lots of free gigs to get your face well known and get your music well known but at the same time you were struggling to pay rent mm-hmm. and pay you know pay your mortgage and pay for you know pay for your guitar strings but actually you needed to do all these free gigs because you needed to get your face known until that flip point yeah. where you started to get paid for stuff and then you were kind of like i'm actually getting paid for yeah. paid for doing what i'm doing um, I remember one uh, record company saying to me, um, it takes your whole life to write your first album. And uh, and then what are you going to do about your second album? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that because you must have felt like it's taken my whole life to write my first book because your whole life's in your first book. But you've already got your second and third underway. Mm-hmm. That's a, that is a creative so feat. I, I've done everything back to front because really, really you should become known for something and then write a memoir. Right? Nobody knew who I was. So I wrote a memoir and it's just some random guy for Livingston. Nobody knew me. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why it was so hard to get a publisher in the first place. Because they're like, ah, this is great, but nobody knows who you are. You're not a celebrity. You're not Tyson Fury. You're not um, Russell Brand. Yeah. And you're talking about addiction. But I guess, you know, it was like serendipitous or, you know, higher power is what I like to say. Um, we are suffering a tragedy in Scotland of drugs-related deaths. There's a crisis. We've got the worst figures per head of population in Europe. My book came out right when society, when the government started um, admitting publicly that there was a problem. So it just came in and it just was, you know, I'd been trying to get the book out for a year or two before that. So it happened when it was meant to happen. And when it came out, it was socially relevant. And then I got asked to speak at an event and everything just went from there. Yeah. You know, most of the stuff I've done, like the TV show, I didn't go seeking it, it came to me. Mm-hmm. The amazing producers at STV contacted me, loved working with them, but they came to me. I didn't go seeking them. Nine times out of ten, when I've gone looking for a thing, it doesn't really happen, but if it comes to me, then it happens. 
there are exceptions to that. Like I had to go looking for an agent. You have to seek that out. But even that didn't happen in a, a linear way. It was like I went to someone who suggested someone who got me around to my agent. And then when we found each other, I was like, this is a perfect click. Um, and the other two books I've written are kind of genre bending. They are um, a hybrid between memoir and fiction. Mm-hmm. They're based on real social themes and real experiences I've had and real people. But completely fictionalized storyline, right? Um, and the people have been changed enough so that no one can be identifiable. Yeah, but based on real stuff. So those two are written, and I was very fortunate to get funding towards both of those. Now they're in the hands of my agent, and this is the part where, even though I'm an addict in recovery, I've still got an addict head. I'm I'm, I'm impatient, and I'm like, <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> now I need to leave it up to my, my agent knows this industry much better than me and she's been really great at keeping me on track and now I just have to trust the process and leave it in, in her hands and then that's why I started writing a screenplay now and um, to give myself something else creative to do um, whilst I'm waiting for that to materialise. It, it, it sounds like all of this comes naturally to you. Do you enjoy the process of, of, yeah. of writing and is it cathartic? I love writing. So writing a screenplay for a full film is like twenty five to 30,000 words but I'm already a novelist. I'm used to writing between 60 and 100,000 words. Okay, and I've written yeah. three books. One yeah. published, two that are current. Uh, they're manuscripts that mm-hmm. are in submission. So even though screenplay is a different format, um, once I started learning format, I just felt this fire erupting me. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to oh, write a wow, film now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the lessons I learned about, first of all, doing the book and then the TV show, because I've never presented a TV show either. It's like, all right, put the camera in my face and we'll, we'll see how we do and I had a great team around me keeping me right. I, lo- I loved it, by the way. Absolutely yeah, loved it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I like I won't take all the credit, because like, with the book, you've got a great editor, right? And a great publisher. And you have a great agent. And with the TV show, you've got a film guy and a sound person, and you've got a producer. So there's a whole team. It's like being the spearhead, isn't it, of like yeah. a great team? Yeah. Right? So I would never take full credit for anything. Same with the charity. We've got a board, and me and Mark do stuff. So there's all of us together. But when you start something like writing, it is just you. Mm-hmm. And you have to have that solid belief in yourself that this can go somewhere. And I'm writing this screenplay, and I've never written a film before. But I'm like, I've learned that my charity got charitable status. My book became published, and I became a TV presenter. Wow. So I've learned that lesson now that, okay, you can do something that mm-hmm. seems scary. And that's what we were talking earlier about. Those lessons weren't there when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. There was no one saying, this is achievable for you, because everything was like down here. Um, and Aidan, I wonder if you would share with Paul, you've shared with, with me before, um, just through our work together, um, about your vision board, your kind of, you know, visualisation, because yeah. this, to me, just uh, blows my mind every time I hear it. So it, it comes from a book called The Secret, you know, mm-hmm. and when I was writing my, my book, I was listening to this book, the audio book of The Secret, and the whole sort of aspect of it is positive visualisation. Okay. And the vision board is you write things down, but you write them down as if they've already happened. Mm-hmm. So I've got a bunch of stuff on there. The stuff that happened, so I, before I got a publisher, before I even finished my book, I wrote down I'm a published author. I wrote down stuff like um, film and TV producers contact me. And then that kind of stuff started happening. And the more it starts happening, you'll be like, wow. Um, <clears throat> so and I, I wrote down stuff like um, I've got a, my charity has received official charitable status so you write it like it's happened so it's almost like a destination that's already there and it's just waiting for you to arrive to it so i've been using vision boards for the best part of four to five years now and again it's it's a total complete turnaround from the thinking of a a person who left school at 16 thinking 
and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Apart from a drug subculture. Yeah. And um, that's the only thing I move instant gratification. I now know there's a process, and I now believe that these things that seemed out with my capabilities really are not. Yeah. And anything I've not figured out yet, I'll figure it out on the way. What, what, one of the things that strikes me is uh, you talk about that fire, you know, building up, and 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 for me, I, I kind of interpret that as as passion, right? And 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 th- that's really important again in terms of synergy yeah. Yeah. because you talk about um, you know f- folk being presented with or hopefully being presented with a variety of potential opportunities out of a situation, but the thing that strikes me is unless there's a real resonation of passion for you it's creativity Mm. um but it could have been something completely different um and that's why every individual is really important because the the potential off-ramp if you like has to be an attractive one where the person feels compelled and passionate about that route out um for it to have a better chance I, i think i don't know whether um, whether you agree with that? No, I agree with uh, yeah, that. I yeah. think back to high school and it was like a conveyor belt of um, getting kids in and out the door as quickly as possible. Yeah. And yeah. I don't ever remember anyone getting nurtured for their beliefs or their talents or, or their vision or even being asked, what, what do you want to do with your life? Um, so in the group yeah. of friends I was a part of, like I didn't even finish half my grades and stuff. It was straight out the door in a complete oblivion. And I was still a baby, still a kid, a yeah. kid with an addiction problem. Yeah. Um, and it's later in life where I've found my passion. And it's like, I've read a book recently called Ikigai. Mm-hmm. And I would highly recommend this book. Okay, This is about finding your purpose. And when you know your purpose, like you'll always have that drive and that passion when you discover it. So I always wrote, actually, I, I wrote poetry all my life. But where I grew up, you didn't tell anyone you wrote poetry. But I was inspired by people who I thought were cool as hell, like Kurt Cobain, Eminem. Mm-hmm. And I loved the way they took their pain and turned it into lyrics that were like just yeah. so punchy mm-hmm. and, and so raw. And so I always wrote poetry, but it was just mine. I didn't know I could do something with this. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, maybe not a good example, but when people passed away, I would write poems for the people that had passed away. And it, sometimes they would, the family members would be like so gushing with emotion, but you would always just assume that it was because it was personal to them rather than you had this creative talent right. that could be turned into something. Um, and it was much later when I discovered that, oh, I'm a creative writer. Mm-hmm. And then your mind is like, well, there's so many possibilities now. You can start this charity. You can you can become a speaker. You can, you get asked by a production company, do you want to film a TV show? It's here? the belief as well, though. It's, it's self-perpetuating, yeah. isn't it? Because you, you're building self-belief and confidence every time one of these things happens. But right at the beginning of that journey, as, as you say, you kind of, doing this stuff you know it's there but you don't know what it looks like yet um and and you're not sure how it can manifest itself but there's also the the completing something right so when i went to college and got my hnc was the first time i really had started so i hadn't Mm -hmm. completed it Mm -hmm. and it was the first lesson that oh i can achieve a thing i can see this all the way through Mm -hmm. and it was also a lesson that it's not instant either it's not like picking up a drug or a drink or any other form of addiction addiction or addictive behavior which you can get instantly yeah um, it was long form and then the rewards were so much greater because mm. you've struggled and sacrificed mm. along the way to get it. Yeah. How many times have we talked about adversity and challenge um, being important to gratification and long and form decision-making. and decision making? Yeah. You know, you've, you've got... Distract, delay, decide. Oh, there you go. 
Yeah. You you put it better than me. Yeah, yeah that, that is it. You know, when we yeah. want to make an impulsive decision over something, mm -hmm. we always think, oh, actually, let's just see where the barriers are and can yeah. we put barriers up that we can na navigate around easily? And, and if, if we're navigating them around easily, should we be? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and are we really doing it ethically and, 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 you know, sustainably? And I think that that's really important because if, if we're... If we're always um, doing things ethically and sustainably and properly, then that's then that's right. Tr trusting in the process, trusting though, the is process, you know yeah. you, you you said I, I I still struggle with that, right? I I I I, I always you how want many, you how want instant gratification now yeah. now <laughs> now yeah, and I'm like slow slow slow. Yeah, yeah. Even though I've learned that lesson, I still need people around me that I trust that keep me grounded. Yeah, remind me that's, yeah, it's important, so yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I'm not like yeah, I'm a guru about it, and uh -huh. I still need reminded myself. Uh -huh. So, Aidan, I wonder if I could um, be cheeky right now. Of course, and, of course. you're always cheeky. You're <laughs> always Why cheeky. <laughs> and, and push you for um, a little insight into your vision board just now. Oh, and, okay. Right. And and ask you for um, one thing off your vision board that you want to achieve, maybe soon or this year or next year or, or something that you think you could tell our, our, our listeners and our viewers that you're, you're that's up for up for grabs okay no, no pressure no, no pressure, i'm just thinking yeah. which one will i share uh -huh. there's there's a bunch on there yeah. and, and does that make it more does that make it uh, unlucky to do that i don't know if it is there, is there a rule i don't know well i've not usually shared them until after the fact if they've happened yeah um and when ones have happened, I take them down and I start putting more ambitious ones on. Because there are some that uh -huh. I've had, right? And I'm like, oh, that's, that's too ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> that's just too big. <laughs> now I'm starting to go, all right, let's just put that out yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Some people say um, cosmic ordering. You order from the universe. So there's different belief mm -hmm. systems. But I'll, one of them, I'll just, I'll tell you one of them since mm -hmm. we're on the topic of the scheme. One of them is that the scheme um, is fully funded by a certain point this year. Okay. And fully funded, I don't mean the end goal of fully funding, I mean the first round of yeah. funding, first round yeah. funding that okay. gets us funding that we're operational. And as part of that vision, yeah, it's that we help as many people as we can. Um, so I think we've literally just finished applying for funds and where we're at with the scheme is, as a new charity, you have to usually evidence 12 months of service right. yep. to show that there's a need for that. But also, you need funding before you can deliver a service. Yeah, catch so we're chicken yeah. and egg right now. Yeah, yeah. And we are just honest in an application to say, look, we're in chicken and egg stage. But mm -hmm. here's us, here's the history of us as people and everything we want to do and mm -hmm. we were positioned in this yeah. whole thing. And this is where we think we can go. And we've got all these people that want to work with us and all that kind of stuff. So we've put in some solid funding applications, but at the same time, fully respect and appreciate that funding um, givers or grantors or whatever they're, they're called, it's public money and they need to make hard decisions about where that goes and they will get um, pulled up if it doesn't go to the right place. So yeah. um, my vision for the scheme is that by the, the summer um, this year we can be running full time and providing this service because I, I fully believe with all the people that want to work with us that the floodgates will just open. As yeah. soon as we say we're full time now yeah. we can go, yeah. the floodgates will open. Great, okay. So it's out in the universe now. It's out in the universe. And the open. <laughs> it's out in the open, out in the U universe. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I guess just um, lastly, because we've not really touched on it much, is just your work around trauma. Mm -hmm. um, I know that we've kind of threaded it through mm -hmm. um, the conversation, but I know from um, just our work together that you've done a lot of work um, in trauma informed training, and um, your, your television um, program was was around trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, how important do you think 
trauma-informed training is um, going to be in terms of, you know, educating the person, educating, you know, society as a whole. I don't want to sound too bold, but I think it might be the most important aspect of what I'm doing, yeah. is raising awareness about trauma. My second book, um, on the surface, is about lad culture yep. and um, and substances and, and, and males that don't know how to treat women. And, um, and uh, you know, there'll, there'll be some places, some bad reviews that only see that. Yeah. But anyone that can look deeper in that will see that it's about intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's about not breaking the cycle of trauma and, and the manifestations that come generation after generation after generation. Yeah. An example being when I was born, my biological father went and got wasted and never came back. When my oldest son was born, I relapsed and went and got wasted. That was history repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's changed is there's been an intervention and as long as I stay in recovery and do the right things, my children won't grow up with attachment or abandonment or domestic violence in the house or, or substance abuse in the household. And they'll have a much better chance of being free of those kind of things. Yeah. So change in history, right? Yeah. 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 And as a society, sort of I think that's important. Type idea. Yeah. yeah. And I think I think um and that's not to discount all the other things, but I think if we tackle trauma and we can arrest it and, and change a lot of situations for a lot of people with us, we can change the future for a lot of people as well. We've talked about this before, even that, that it's not just um uh situational trauma that happens in sort of um, areas of, of deprivation that happens in, in all society yeah. um, and I think that that's really important to understand as well that trauma can infiltrate everyone mm-hmm. yeah it would be a total fallacy to suggest that it only happens to one section of the yep. of, of the world of yep. society yep. and it would also be really cruel and unfair to other sections of society if we only focused it on one area you know if, if we only said that it happens to working class folk for example mm-hmm. it would yeah. be really cruel to other people who go through it who feel like they're overlooked because they don't fit that category or that branding per se yeah. um we always say in recovery about addiction and it's the same for trauma it doesn't discriminate you know it can happen to anyone yeah okay what a guest what a guest what and and you know just uh just such powerful messages in there and you know in in such a short period of time right and we, we could we could sit here for a long long time but yeah, yeah amazing yeah. thanks for having me no, no, at all. yep and um we'll put um aiden's uh twitter tags and hashtags and Absolutely. tweet tags and yeah, everything all the tags yeah, yeah all the tags all the book tags, tags. Yeah, book, book tags yeah book tags, show, tags. everything yeah uh, below for everyone to uh, to follow and and to have a look and and the scheme links as well yes Please, um, just for everyone to to have a look and, and if they're interested contact you about it Excellent. thank you so much aiden for thank joining you. us today on lucky number 11 thank you <laughs> thank Thanks. you